Hey, Kyle, this is Tamir Klein listening in from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm a local artist and lake surfer. Currently, I'm working on some projects involving surf craft and woodblock printing. Always excited to hear each episode you throw on, and I uh, can't wait for more to come. Catch you on the flip side. That made my day. Thank you for taking the time to send that in, Tamir. If any of you would like to send me a voice memo, let me know who you are, something you're working on these days, uh, where you're tuning in from. You can record it on your phone, try and keep it under 30 seconds, and you can email it to me. My email is kyle at kyle.surf. Also, huge thank you to Jeff B. for donating on Patreon this week. High five, Jeff. It is people like you who keep this podcast ad-free. It's people like you who allow me to drive all over California and get these conversations for you. Um, And I really appreciate it. Every dollar counts, so whatever you can donate, 5 bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks a month, um, it really does matter. And if you can't donate, please don't stress on it. Just keep enjoying the podcast, share it with a friend, give it a rating on iTunes, whatever. I just made it back up north after a good little jaunt down to Southern California where I got a number of podcasts that I'm very excited to release. Um, this being one of them, Albie Layer being another that I'm going to release in the days ahead. Um, and it was a good trip all, all, all around. Went to a really fun music festival, lost my voice. Uh, that was a bit of a, um, a handicap for a few days being a podcaster, but it all, it all works out, doesn't it? This podcast is with Rob Machado. Rob first and foremost, played himself in the 2007 animated picture Surf's Up. Had to start with that one. He also starred in The Drifter. He has won many of the most prestigious surf competitions around. He's won the Pipe Masters. He's won the U.S. Open. He's finished in the top three on the World Tour twice. But we all know why we love watching Machado surf, don't we? It's because he is free from concern, and he seems to have a special connection with the ocean. I recently watched a documentary called Jim and Andy, and it's about Jim Carrey's uh, evolution playing Andy Kaufman in a documentary called uh, Man on the Moon. And Jim Carrey, at a certain point in the interview is talking about how he wanted to be this rich, famous actor. Um, And he said, okay, so I know that that's what I want, but what does the audience want? What do they need? And he says, one night I was laying in bed and I sat up and I said out loud, people want to be free from concern. And the next time he went on stage, he did the bit where he says, hey, how's everyone doing? All righty then, to show that he's free from concern. And Mr. Rob Machado is, I think, similar in that way that he allows you to relax by being so free from concern himself. Um and we just had a great, great time together. It's always fun when you, when I get to meet people like Rob, who turn out to be genuinely cool, thoughtful, engaged human beings. And we had a great time. Also, uh, before I get this episode going, I wanted to thank Evan Slater for hooking us up. Evan listens to the podcast and was the conduit to make this conversation happen. So, without further ado, please welcome to the show, Mr. Rob Machado. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Welcome to the Kyle Show. 
kind of gritty too. That was a that was a late night in downtown LA. <clears throat> yeah, it was. Uh, so we're both coming from <laughs> a little bit of the rasp. Yeah, it, uh, it. It's been funny because an intention of mine uh, has recently been to not blovate on podcasts and speak needlessly. So now I've lost my voice. Because I just came back from the Bombay Beach Biennale, which is a festival out near the Salton Sea, and I uh, had a little too much fun. So now I need to be very specific with what I say. So <laughs> you always get what you ask for, right? Choose your words. What wisely. was what was uh, a highlight of the concert? Um, highlight for me was just you know finally getting to see Jack White in person, live. Um, been a big fan um we were just talking about the documentary that came out it might get loud with uh jack white jimmy page um the edge that's my son cruising by and um who was it was there four guys no i think it was just those three three but i could be anyway amazing documentary um and there was just such great insight uh, to him you know, and a musician and how he approaches music and just so raw and unfiltered. And I just always wanted to see what he would produce on stage and see the energy. Cause there's concert footage in that movie that you're just like, he's bleeding and he's just, you know, I mean, it was he, cool. He puts his soul out there. Yeah. He's not scared to just dive in and pick a fight with his guitar and, and, and go after it. Yeah. Um, yeah, one thing I, I got out of that movie, and I'm not a musician, but was the beginning where he takes it's a plank of wood, a a metal string, and what other what are the other contraptions he has? Yeah, uses? it was just like you said, a chunk of wood, a couple nails, and he stretches just a piece of wire across, right, and and then uh, he he puts a little uh, pickup underneath it, and then he just turns on this distorted crusty amp and plays this slide guitar on it and and then you know turns it off as he takes a drag off his cigarette and says <laughs> who says you have to buy a guitar you know and it just like goes all right that it was a beautiful way to start that movie i feel like um you have a similarity uh to him with the way that you've always ridden surfboards always had an appreciation for boards that aren't necessarily the most high performance but you'll ride them just to prove that you can ride them <laughs> i just think you know I, I never liked the idea of there being a bad surfboard i always thought that every board is good for someone somewhere and and that's inevitably that's true because what you might think is a terrible surfboard as a pro surfer and doesn't suit your needs it, it ends up in a home somewhere some kid is stoked and it gives that kid a bunch of happiness right so it's it's really it, when i stopped doing the tour i had this revelation of like wow i don't have to ride that specific surfboard and surf that specific way and i i did i stopped riding a high performance thruster i didn't touch one for probably a year and a half two years and i started making single fins with al and twin fins and no fins and what anything and everything and just uh, you know you have to remember too that I didn't even start surfing I started surfing in 83 84 and my first board was a single fin and my second board was a twin fin and then it was thrusters from there on out so life for me basically existed on a thruster so when I'd go in and ask Al to make me a single finny, oh, yeah, 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 we already did that, Robert, you know, like, and um, I was like, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't get to feel that, I, like, he had these photos on the wall, these crazy looking boards from the 70s, and I wanted, I want to, like, did those boards work? And he said, well, at the time, we thought they were great, but compared to what you guys do now, and I was always intrigued by that, like, well, there's, there's so much to learn from going back. I've been thinking about that concept a lot. <clears throat> I think that there's this need right now in society for people to feel like they're constantly coming up with new ideas and better ideas and what's on the forefront. Um, and there's a real lack of respect and reverence for the ideas that people have come up with before us. Um, 
you could take uh, the environmental movement, for example. There were some great leaders in the 60s who were beautiful speakers and really changed culture. And for us to go back and become educated by those people and bring to light some of those ideas that aren't new but maybe have been forgotten, I think is a, a good prism to look at the world through. Most definitely. There's so much that has happened on this planet and, you know, long before we've been around and there's so much to reflect on and dig into and learn from. And it's not, I mean, what, what's those cars driving around nowadays? Tesla? The Tesla's, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, there you go. Like he was, he was deemed to be kind of crazy, right? He was way out there and now magically his cars are just driving around. Yeah. Kelly's super into Tesla, right? I think so. He's always been like, give his like kind of far off interviews. (laughs) Right. Like space out. And Nikola Tesla was way ahead of his time. (laughs) But he really was. Yeah. There are documentaries about Tesla and he was out on the top of a mountain with this pigeon. He had this weird relationship with a pigeon as well when he was creating (laughs) energy sources and, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, alternate current energy is what yeah. he, he came up with that we now rely on. Yeah. Um, have you taken that philosophy of um, having a reverence and respect for where we came from with your um, surfboards that you're making now? Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to surfboards, um, uh, I look at surfboards and I compare, I always compare it to music, right? I mean, surfing and music have so much in common. To me, um, there's no rules, there's no restrictions, there's no one telling you where, when, how, why, nothing. And it's, uh, you look at a guitar, or you look at even a piano, and you think like, well, there's only so many possibilities, right? There's X amount of notes on a guitar, on a piano. It's like, why why hasn't every song or every, every possible combination already been played? Well, that's not even possible, right? I mean, realistically, because songs can just be created in different tempos and rhythms, and I mean, it's it's endless all the all the different variations that come into play. So, when you look back at single fins, I mean, and, and all the different directions they went with single fins, and from, I mean, from you know downing guns to you know, I mean, uh, what's downing guns? Well, I mean, let me. Let me retract that. I meant to say brewer. I was going to say brewer. That's what I meant to say. Okay. So looking back, some like like brew, old school like brewer single fin guns to like now look and then looking at like what Buttons was doing at VLAN when they were pushing their fins super far up and spinning and that was crazy. And then the evolution of that into a fish and you know, MR and what he did on a twin fin versus what Steve Liss did with his twin fin and all the different variations. It's like, it's so endless. Um, What was the difference between uh, MR and Steve Liss in the twin fins that they were creating? Steve Liss was basically responsible for creating the traditional fish that we, we all see kind of like what, what you see Skip Fry making, what you see Christensen. I mean, that general outline. There's a, there's actually a documentary about it called Fish. I recommend it's it's a rad story on how that became. And um, they're guys from the San Diego reefs down here, and he, uh, they were kneeboarders, and they decided to make these. You know, <laughs> the reason for the tail, and, and it's told in the movie, and why it's got that big, <laughs> you know, cutout was. Th- he he just laid his swim fins down and that was so when he was on his knees and his swim fins were laying down that was to mimic where his fins were laying on his board no way <laughs> so it's like just that concept alone was so fascinating to me i was like wow that's crazy and then then they started standing up on them and like oh my gosh and then nueva i mean surfboards and then you fast forward to you know simon anderson and then you go to Almeric and thrusters and modern the nineties thrusters and how thin they were and chipped out and rockered out. And it's, it's kind of, man, there's just so many different variables out there that you can play with and explore. And 
it's endless really it is even if like i've been surfing my whole life and i still feel like i'm at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to my own knowledge around surfboard design and relating it back to music there are a whole different bunch of different genres out there yep. and you're really limiting yourself if you're only li- listening to dubstep <laughs> <laughs> you are and that's why i felt so limited when i was I was on the tour and riding a traditional thruster every single day, day in and day out. One of my favorite parts, I think last year at J-Bay, they had a little specialty event where the guys rode fishes. And I was like, that's amazing. Why don't they do that at every event? Like that is, I like different, different boards. I, I think it's really just, it's cool to see guys draw different lines. You're, you're, you're obviously already have this group of surfers that are some of the most talented surfers on the planet like their technique and their ability is like above and beyond or else they wouldn't be there so you put them on a on a on a different craft and make them explore different lines and it's it's amazing yeah gives you a different appreciation for them as well yeah absolutely so um was there uh tell me about the point when you started making your own boards because it's something that you've become more and more into it over the last few years. Is that right? Yeah. Um, it goes back pretty far. I remember standing my first shaper, his name was Greg Sarge. And I remember my dad built him a shaping room in our backyard. So I got to stand in the shaping room and watch him shape boards and shape my boards. And so I still have those memories kind of ingrained. Um, as I moved on, I started working with Al and I did that with Al a lot. I got to be in the shaping room and I was always super interested like on like why you use certain tools on certain things and and it was just cool to watch him finish boards and, and the detail and, and just I still have it like in my brain, these images. And and then I just started tinkering. I think it was around the late nineties or two thousand I um I made I was like, I want to make a surfboard, like from start to finish, like shaped it. I've, you know, tinted it, glassed it, you know, the whole deal from start to finish and wrote it a little, this crappy little single fin, but just to explore the whole process from start to finish was really enlightening to see what goes into making a surfboard. And then the learning process began right there. Then I started to pay more attention to what I was seeing in the shaping room and what was going on and. Um, I started actually tinkering with my own boards, you know, from there on. Um, and then as my relationship with Channel Islands kind of, uh, you know, came to a close, I basically took it upon myself to just start saying, Hey, I'm kind of ready to just start making my own boards. And that's basically where, where it began. Where do you shape out of here? Uh, I could throw a rock from here at my house. It's right around the corner, um, in this, in this garage and it's, and it's just at my friend's house and we have a cool little shaping room and little, little studio. Were there any big mistakes that you made early on or was it more of a, just kind of a gradual progression because you had been shaping for so long anyway? Oh, there's always mistakes, right? I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it. If you're, if you don't fail, you're not learning, you know, it's, I always, I always like the, the trips that things go drastically wrong. Like you have those memories, like those things stick with you sometimes almost more than when everything goes perfectly right. And, uh, that's, I think that's the beauty of shaping. You try things and there's total failures and it makes you, it it almost like, here's this idea. You try it it failed. You can like cross that off the list and like move on to something else and, and then let your mind explore somewhere else. But it's weird because I've noticed that it, it's weird how six months later you'll be doing something and you'll go back to that board that was a failure. And there was actually something in there that was maybe a little bit of a positive that could tie back into this design. Yeah. Thomas Edison has that great quote. He says, um, I didn't fail a thousand times when trying to create a light bulb. I found a thousand ways how not to create a light bulb. (laughs) Thank you. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. That explains it all really. Yeah. So it's, it's not like you said, I wouldn't call them failures because there's always, there's always someone that's going to ride that board and enjoy it and have fun. And, 
and there's something you learned out of it that'll push you in a direction that maybe you didn't think you would go. I think there are also a couple different ways that we can tell the story of our lives. And one is through all the successes that we had. And usually a more honest way is through the failures that we've had and the big learnings that we had through those experiences. A hundred percent. Like, yeah, I mean, we go through so much in our lives, right? And it's just, I'm to the place now where I'm just, I've, I've learned to appreciate every single day and just waking up and, and being very present. Um, that's been my biggest focus in the last, you know, five to 10 years is really learning how to really embrace that and be where you are and, and, um, not get too caught up in everyday life. And (laughs) there's so much going on. It's, It's easy to get caught up in. Did you struggle with that earlier? I think so. Um, you know, I think when I was on tour, I didn't because tour was, you just got to disappear. Like I, 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 I honestly remember being gone for nine to 10 months out of the year when I was, when I was really on tour, I would rather than going to, um, the Goldie and then coming home for three weeks before bells, I would just stay in Australia and I would spend three weeks on the central coast. I would just go get lost and, and just be there. And I, I just, I felt like home I almost like could see this part of my life where I am now, where I'm home a lot more. And I knew that I was going to be able to spend a lot of time at home later in life. So why would I waste those opportunities of spending three weeks on the central coast or going down to the South coast or going to WA? Like there's just so many opportunities out there and, and just, have you ever seen that movie, the yes man? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I mean, right. like there's, there's times in your life where you have that ability to, to be that. Yeah. Your life on tour also is, um, focused on, um, setting short term goals and then achieving those goals and everything else falls into place. If you achieve that goal, if you make that heat and that final, and as soon as that all falls away, I find that that's when a lot of pro athletes struggle because there's this existential crisis of like, okay, wait, what am I, what's the goal that I'm setting to get up in the morning today? Yeah. It's intense. I actually sat on a, on a panel with a bunch of ex professional athletes and, um, football players were the most, there was quite a few of those. Um, it was myself, a few football players, a baseball player. And, um, it was down in San Diego and it was the whole, the whole talk, the whole panel session was about how, how do you leave your sport behind and move into normal life? And one of the football players, it was radical. You know, he was like, I'd be at my locker. Basically I had my headphones on with death metal, just full blast in my ears. He played for the Raiders, black paint. He's like putting on his war paint just like banging his head against his locker to go to war. Like that's how he approached that. So imagine take that away all of a sudden, like he, he did that week in week out for a long period of his life. And then all of a sudden you have that just, uh, there's no outlet. And, uh, there was a movie that came out. I can't remember. Uh, Will, Will Smith was in about, um, about football players. Yeah. Or he, he, uh, discovered CTE, the, um, correct brain issue or the, the, the brain damage that football players were getting. Yeah. Um, I'll think of the the movie. Sidetrack. But yeah, but but it's a, it's a real thing because not only do you not have that outlet to, to do something that you're really good at, your whole social structure is also set up on being you're be you're praised for being really good at one thing right so your identity is so locked into that one thing and when that's taken away from you um it it can be really difficult to move through it into a new identity most definitely um and that's it we were actually sitting with a room full of therapists and they were grilling us with questions um and I think surfing was really unique in the sense that there's not a lot of sports that when you're done competing at the highest level, do you continue to do that activity 
and you do it for enjoyment and you do it for meditational purposes. I mean, for, for whatever reasons you surf, um, you continue to do it. Like I, it's almost like that part of my life, I had to put on a different, uh, my jersey, basically my jersey was a different me, right? It's like if I put a jersey on and paddled out for a heat, that wasn't my normal everyday me going surfing. That was competitive, head down, like do whatever it takes kind of attitude, which is extremely selfish. You had to be extremely selfish to be successful and you have to go out and fight for waves. There was no priority back then, right? Especially on the QS. Um, but it was radical. But I learned, which I think helped me a lot, I learned to, that my jersey was something that I could take off. As soon as I got back to the beach and I took my jersey off, yeah, I would analyze you know, what went right and what went wrong and, and learn from mistakes. That's, that's pretty, pretty standard, I think. But... I was able to walk away and say, cool, now I'm going to go surfing and, and just enjoy where I'm at and and be a surfer. Right. You said, um, that after you got off tour, that kind of what you, you said, one thing you're focused on right now is being present day to day, gratitude, enjoying the moment. And you said that after you got off tour, that's when you were struggling with that. And you think that that's because life became a lot more complex after competitive surfing? Yes and no. And, and I'll explain that. Like when, when you're on tour, life is laid out for you on a schedule. You know, oh, I have to be on the Goldie on February 28th for the event. It starts. Well, I'll go a week early and blah, blah, blah. And I got to get boards for that. And then I got to get my, I mean, it was just orga- organizing really. But your schedule was laid out for an entire year. So I remember the moment I stopped doing the tour in 2001, it was like somebody took that schedule away and put a blank piece of paper in front of me. So that schedule had been there for years and years and years, over a decade. And now it's just a blank piece of paper and you're kind of like, oh shit, what do I do now? Like, because I I didn't have any desire to go back on the QS and try to battle and get on the CT. Like, I just wasn't, just wasn't in my in my cards so I was kind of like hmm like okay like do I start calling people like do I call like you know I mean magazines do I call friends do I, do I like, start doing Sudoku puzzles uh, I don't know how do, what do I do like a bit sidetrack apparently Michael Jordan now is obsessed with Sudoku puzzles <laughs> and that's all he does because he can't go outside because he's too famous right and he's still crazy competitive yeah so he just sits in his house and crushes Sudoku puzzles that's awesome good for him (laughs) does he still go out on a basketball court and play basketball ever do you think I don't know I know good question hey Mike if you're paying attention (laughs) call us up (laughs) Uh, that'd be a good one for Kobe like you know I'd love to hear how that transition is for him you know Um, but it's a hard transition and it's um, very much a real thing for a lot of athletes. Um, I'm super lucky. My best friend is a, is a therapist and he's been a huge part of my life since, you know, when I was on tour, I didn't talk to him that much. I was pretty locked into my whole program. I had it pretty well figured out. Like at least I thought I did. Um, but when I got off tour, that's when we became way closer and he's been hugely influential in my life, helping me guide through normal life because yeah. I didn't live a normal life before that. Were there any, um, kind of mantras or frames or questions that he gave to you that you found to be especially helpful when navigating that period? It, he has this way of, of communicating. Like he just called me the other day randomly and he, uh, you know, I was, hey, what's up, man? And he's like, no, I just wanted to call and just see uh, how you're doing. I'm like, I'm good. He's like, no, really? Like, how are you? And it, and he makes you like second guess yourself, your answer, and kind of think for a second and go, well, now that you mention it, you know, um, 
but that didn't happen the other day, but I've had many times where I've gone to therapy and I've been walking in there like, what am I doing? I'm going to go sit with some dude, some stranger and tell him about, I don't, I, I don't even think anything's wrong. And I go in there and I come out just like bawling my <laughs> right. eyes out and tears <laughs> everywhere and like <clears throat> just trying to hold it together. Yeah. Yeah. I think that those spaces where we have permission to really open up can be immensely valuable for people. Um, because in our culture, we don't really set up those spaces. Yeah. We were talking, um, before we went on about Burning Man and at Burning Man, there is, um, uh, an art structure there called the temple. It's intricately built every year. It's, it's a new kind of temple and it's always silent. You don't talk when you're in the temple and it's a place for grieving. People will write, um, uh, you know, notes on the walls from people who've um, loved ones who they've lost regrets that they've had addictions that they've gotten over. And it's a very powerful place to be in. A lot of, a lot of people are sobbing. Um, and at the end of burning man, um, on, Friday night, they burn the man, and it's this big celebration, woo, party. Right. And then on uh, Saturday night, they burn the temple, hmm. and it's 60,000 people, silent. They turn off all the lights. While it burns. While it burns. Wow. And I think that if we had more temples yeah. um, set up in rea- the real world, um, it could give permission to people to move through whether it be a a spiritual death or a real death. Right. Hey, I'm a, I'm a believer. I haven't been to burning man, but that maybe I'll have to go just to visit the temple. Sounds, sounds like a a good spot. I mean, I had, I, I mean, I think everyone, if they don't find a way there, there's, I don't know how I should say this. I think it creates a pressure cooker situation. Right. Like when we don't yeah. have an outlet, it's the, you know, I'm fine, bro. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, t- I'm totally fucking fine. Yeah. We're macho. I don't cry. I work out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good, bro. I'm totally good. What do you mean? Why'd you just ask me twice? Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> I mean, for me, honestly, like one of the big, biggest learning experiences about all this was when I, I moved to Indonesia and I filmed the drifter and the drifter, was a crazy time in my life and it was me getting away from everything here and I had to leave here and escape to basically indulge into my myself right which sounds pretty selfish but um, one of the one of the quotes that I had written in my journal that ended up on in the movie was um, sometimes when you're most alone you're not alone at all and that was written when I was in a tent on the island of Sumba, far from any sort of civilization. Um, we were shooting, and the, the the closest somewhat of a hotel was like a two-and-a-half-hour drive from where we were shooting, and I was just over it at that point, and I just said, they had to go back and charge cameras and all that, and I was like, dude, I'm I'm just staying here. Just leave me here. And I ended up camping there for like a week, and they would come and go during the, <laughs> during the day, but at night I was in this little two man tent, and it was like a super high risk malaria um, area. So basically, when the sun went down, I would crawl into my tent after I ate my little cup of noodles or something, and just lay there. And that's when you really peel back the layers and dive deep in yourself. <laughs> what um. What did the conversation in your mind sound like in that tent? Oh, it was just, I wish, I mean, I wish I'd break out my journal right now. <laughs> A lot of it's written in there, but it's just asking yourself those questions that you don't take the time to ask, right? That you don't sit still for 15 minutes or an hour or whatever it is and push everything aside and remove yourself from civilization basically is what you have to do and how you, how, how you can find it's hard to do that where, where we are here. So it took me, you know, 
quite a bit of time to, to finally end up in that place. You know, that's what I originally went to Indo to do that, you know, kind of un, subconsciously, but then that's when it kind of all came to fruition, like laying in a tent in the middle of uh, mosquito infested Zumba, like just asking myself the real, the real questions and trying to find real answers. Yeah. Was there, um, your, your life has been public for so long. I would imagine that it's like, how, how do I put this? Like you're going through this intensely personal experience, but there's also being a film. There's also a film being made about this intensely personal experience. Like, how do you keep it authentic to you and like something that you're really going through and not have it be like groovy Rob caricaturized right out there. That was the, that was the hardest part about that project. I would imagine super hard because it's not like if you're shaping a board, that's just you and the board and the product that comes from it is all you. Right. Yeah. But when you're making a movie, there are all these different people involved. There's all these different visions there. and, And you hope that at the end of the day, it comes out to something that's true and real and helpful. Yeah. But there's that anxiety. Like, there's always that anxiety. The like, unknown. Is this going to be fucking cheesy? I don't know. Like, totally. Dude, we went through so many editors and it was, it was such a hard process. And at, at the end of the day, we never really, we couldn't tell the whole story. Like it just couldn't, it felt like it was too much. And it was too revealing and it was too intense. And, and it, uh, I, I actually, it's been 10 years since we made that movie. And I was talking to a lot of the guys who are involved with it, Dustin Humphrey and, um, Taylor Steele. And I'm like, let's make, let's make the real movie, like kind of the behind the scenes, like what really happened and all the struggles and trials and tribulations that we went through. And, and to get to a, a final product, I think it's, crazy story yeah um totally no worries if you don't want to go down that road but would you be willing to talk about any of the behind the scenes stuff that that weren't included wasn't included yeah i mean at the time the reason for me going to to indo in the first place was um i'd separated from my wife she moved across the other side of the world um with our two kids and i was left sitting in this house where we are now um, by myself. And that's why I couldn't be here. I was just totally just torn apart. And I wanted to go, um, to that side of the world. It was closer to them. I could, I could see my kids more and I could hopefully find some sort of resolve amongst myself and my thoughts. Um, Taylor, I went to Taylor's house. He was living in Bali at the time and I stayed with him and he kind of, came up with the idea. Dustin Humphrey was, was there also. And we all kind of brainstormed this idea of like, dude, just come and live here and we'll, we're just going to follow you around and take you to all the best waves and you can surf your brains out and, um, we'll kind of just see what happens. And I mean, we had, it was, it was a journey, trials and tribulations of, uh, figuring out where to go and how to get there and what to do. And we had guys, you know, I was dealing with uh, relationship issues. Um, you know, we had guys getting sick, uh, guys got malaria and typhoid. And I mean, guys were in the hospital at times and on our crew and it was just radical, man. Lots of ups and downs and editors and filmers getting, you know, yeah. you're dealing with a lot of people and yeah, personalities and, and you're trying to create a narrative yeah. that's going to be yeah. made into a, a watchable film. Right. So here I was over here all with my issues, like and, in the middle of it yeah. too. Like, yeah. It's not like something that's resolved that you're looking back on. You're like, I don't know no. where this is going to go. <laughs> so then I invite all these other people to like come around me and like, all right, let's do this. And, and then all these other people bring to the table life. It's just life, really. Like, we all have our issues and our our way to get through life. And so you kind of, I've, I learned so much about personal relationships with other people and uh, dealing with 
just getting from A to B sometimes. Yeah. Good for you, man. Um, I would imagine too that like there's been, like, I, I do want to dig in more to post post pro tour um, career and remaining authentic while dealing with so many people and brands and like having this, this image that is, it's very sellable, right? So like, like how do you find the balance? Find the fuck. Yeah. Find the balance. You know, I, I think now more than ever, people want transparency. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and it's there, you know, with the world, the world we live in and the, the access to information that we all have now, um, you can pick apart anything. And I, I guess thinking back, like I've tried to always be as real as possible to with whoever that I'm speaking to. Um, if it's the, the little kid that runs up to you on the side of the street and asks for an autograph and you to, I, and I remember this from my own experience of actually getting an autograph from say, uh, like a Sean Thompson when I was, when I was 12 at the Stubbies pro in Oceanside and, and running up to one of these guys and, and saying like, Hey, can I get your autograph? And the guy looking at you going, Hey, what's up, man? Did you surf today? Or engaging in it like 30 second conversation with you, like was such a difference than the guy who just signed your shirt and, and like threw your pen at you. Right. Like the, the guy who engaged with you, he was, he was your lifelong fan. Yeah. I think that there are, um, like going back to how we frame our lives and how we look back at our past. Um, I think that an honest way to frame it is through failure. Another honest way to, to frame it is through people who we came into contact with at certain times in our life that really helped and shaped us and how sometimes it can be nothing more than a five minute conversation with someone who you really respect and they give you a piece of advice or you see something that they do and that shapes the rest of your life. You didn't know, you didn't know it then, but then looking back retrospectively, like just someone giving you the time of day can mean so much. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, on that note, there was a book and I used to always travel with a book and just, just would read different types of books throughout my travels. And, and, uh, um, I'd always walk by those like airport bookstores, Hudson news or whatever. And, uh, there was always a book that caught my attention by the Dalai Lama. It was the art of happiness. I'm like, wow, what a great title. (laughs) Like, that's beautiful. <laughs> and there was, so I tra- you know, I tried positive thinking once, yeah. but I knew it wouldn't work. <laughs> there were so many times that I looked at that book and went, ah, oh, yeah, okay. I'm going to read that someday. And I, uh, but I got this other book. I'm like, I'm into this book. I'm not, I don't want to have t- a bunch of books in my backpack. So, and I totally remember the day I finally, the moment came and I was, there was a little bit of turmoil in my life. I was amongst, you know, it was, this was like pre drifter and uh, like kind of post tour. And I was just in this, in this weird space. And I finally was in an airport and I didn't have a book and I was like, okay. And it was even better. Cause I walked up to the Hudson news or wherever, whatever it's called there. And, and there was a full display like where it was like, for some reason it was just calling and I'm a true believer that if I would have read that book any other time in my life, it probably wouldn't have been that as impactful. And I was so ready for it. Like I just walked by, I looked at it and just bam, straight in. I bought it. I still have it. And it just, everything I read just was absorbed and so much more impactful because I was so open to it at that time. So I wouldn't say like, Hey, go pick up this book and, you know, and read it. Because it might not be the right time for you. Right. And it's, 
like you said, there's those moments in your life where everything falls into place for a reason. And that book at that time just gave me this clarity uh, to deal with a lot of things. Was it um, Buddhist philosophy? Was there anything specifically in there that you remember getting out of it that was helpful? It was the simplicity of, of, of the message. It was so basic. And it definitely um, keeps kind of going back to the same message over, but through different ways, kind of um, get landing on the topic. Um, and, and, and we talked about it earlier. It's, it's really about being present, being here right now, engaging in where you are, not thinking about yesterday, what happened last night, or what's going to happen tomorrow. It's about here. And we can get so caught up in everything else except what's happening right now. Yeah, it, become, it can become paralyzing. <laughs> totally. And that's, it happens to me. I still, I mean, still to this day, I still have to remind myself and refresh and understand. And that's, and that's okay. Like, uh, we're not perfect. Yeah. But I think um, that if we take life and compartmentalize it down to bite-sized chunks, uh, it can become a lot more manageable. There's a book along that same line uh, that was written by a guy named Dale Carnegie called How to Stop Worrying and Start and Start Living. And I, I read it at the perfect time in my life. And it was just that. It's like, if you want to stop worrying, take a look at today, think about, all right, what are three things that I can get done today that would make my life better? And then, um, along the same line of, of Buddhism is, uh, cultivating gratitude. Yeah. There's a lot of science coming out now around gratitude journals and what it does to, um, our cognitive ability, outlook on life. Mm Mm-hmm wake up in the morning. What are three things that I'm grateful for? Yeah. Shit works. <laughs> <laughs> totally. A hundred percent, man. Like I love waking up now and, and just looking out my window. I'm fortunate to live where I can see the ocean and I look out at the ocean and it is one of the most beautiful things that I think we have on this planet. Yeah, man. And it has given us so much, so much happiness and, uh, I mean, the list of emotions that it can give you is, yeah. you is don't through see, the roof. You don't see a lot of people setting up shop and just gazing out in an empty tennis court. Yeah, no. Nope. Hours on that. I just love looking at tennis courts. <laughs> I And I love it because I live and there's a street in front of my house and everybody pulls up when it's going to be one of those sunsets and they park and they get out of their cars and they sit with their their loved one or whoever it may be and their friend and, and they watch the sun go down and it's, um, and they stare out at this, at the ocean. And, uh, like I've spent some time with Jerry Lopez in in the past and, uh, we were talking about last year actually. And he said, you know, surfing is one of the highest forms of meditation. And I, I never thought of it like that really to hear him say that I was, I, I was caught off guard at first. I was like, wow, like, tell me like, and, and, and then he elaborated on it. You know, it's like you're sitting out staring into empty space for long periods of time. And you're waiting, you're, you're highly focused on the ocean and every single movement that's going on every sim, single like wind pattern, if the wind switches or changes and for no reason at all, sometimes you just decide to paddle over there or over there in any direction really. And then the end result being is that eventually this, a gift is kind of appears out of this open space that you get to ride. And I don't know. I would describe my session at lowers yesterday, closer to being in a serpent's pit than a (laughs) spiritual experience. But I do know what you're talking about every now and again, I'll have those sessions. Yeah. I, um, I've, always, I've wanted to do a podcast with Jerry because I think that he's someone who has been very comfortable letting an old identity go and continuing to learn and move into something new. Yeah. And I think it's amazing what he's evolved and how he's evolved. And he's basically, uh, I think, I think a lot of us 
look up to to Jerry as, you know, a leader and a spiritual guide guide to <laughs> where I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about your foundation and what you're doing with water in schools. Yeah. How'd that get started? Well, I started a foundation. It was over a decade ago. And the idea at the time was just to do environmental education. Um, I was going to like elementary schools that my kids were going to, and they didn't even have recycling programs. And I was just like blown away. Um, I grew up, my mom was a vegetarian. You know, this is in the 70s and 80s when that wasn't probably very cool. Like (laughs) we'd go to these weird little hole in the wall natural food stores and my mom would be buying all these, you know, beans and, you know, it's just she thought differently. So I was kind of raised in that environment. But going into schools, getting back to the schools, um, there was just all these these needs. They didn't have recycling programs at lunch. Um, I saw an opportunity to put it, put in gardens. And then I had this, I was at the school that I went to, and I saw the original drinking fountain that I used to drink out of. I thought, wow, cool. You guys still drink out of these? And all the kids were like, ew, no way. That's just, they're so gross. And then I started looking around. And I'm like, all these kids come to school with like a plastic bottle like the single use plastic, whatever. And I was just, I was kind of tripped out. Like kids, I grew up drinking out of a hose or a drinking fountain, whatever, the sink. And I was like, well, this drinking fountain is just sitting here and no one uses it because it tastes gross and it's that old that why don't you come in and replace it with something that's functional and, and it inspires the kids to maybe not bring a single use plastic water bottle. So it's evolved over the years. What really hit me hard was when I went to high schools. That was a whole different level because vending machines have now been introduced to high schools. Unbeknownst to me, like when I was in high school, that didn't exist, but that was like 100 years ago. But they're selling water, right? It's like the airport. You know, you're, they're, they're selling water for like $2.50, $3. Here's high school kids that don't have any money to start with, and you got to pay for water at high school. And I was just like, dang, that's all wrong. So we started there and the high school kids embraced it way more because they're like, let's do this. Let's start a water club. And we get bottles with their school logo printed on them. And we're like, dude, you guys can sell these on campus and you guys can raise money to put in more refill stations and like, it's, it's kind of like a plug in and go, like, we don't want to sit here and, and just keep like putting them in. We're like, want to inspire them to do it themselves. Um, and it's been received so well. And I think it's probably been adopted by other schools and which is great. I'm like, cool. The more, the merrier, like you guys, this, these things should be everywhere and you should actually ban plastic from high school campuses, from all campuses. So that was kind of. The idea going into it is like, dude, no one should ever have to go buy water out of that stupid vending machine. Or they, they shouldn't even be able to buy a Coke. Like, that's that's a whole nother topic. Going back <laughs> to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation around history and having a reverence for the past. If you didn't grow up drinking out of streams, you don't know that that's what people used to do. Right. And if you grew up in high school where the norm is paying two fifty for a bottle of water, you don't realize that water used to be a right that was free. Yeah. And it's sold to us through marketing yeah. um, to make us believe that bottled water is clean, tap water is dirty, and that we should have to pay for a fundamental right. Yeah. And it, it, you, you see it happen all over the world and you see it happen in more dramatic cases, like in the case of Bolivia, when Nestle came in and privatized the water resources and, and, and started to um, force locals to pay for their own water. And these are poor people, people yeah. who do not have enough money to pay Nestle for their water. And they went outside Nestle's headquarters for weeks on end with pots and pans and protested and didn't let any of the employees go to work and um, it was a success story. It, um, the company ended up giving back the Bolivians their water. Nice. Um, but the cases like this are yeah. happening all over the world and it's only going to become 
more prevalent as water becomes a more valuable resource. I agree. And, uh, there's so many stories. Yeah. There's so many. I think, I think also working in schools is a really intelligent, um, point of entry because you change one system and then all of a sudden you're impacting thousands of kids. Yeah. You know, it's not like, uh, like, you know, pick up a piece of trash when you uh, are coming back from the beach. But imagine if you picked that one piece of trash up and thousands of pieces of trash were also picked up. Yeah. That's what you're getting when you, um, are approaching the school system. Yeah. It's been, the results have been really cool to see. Um, like you said, starting at the, in the elementary level, even with recycling, you know, you have kids that are going home and they're jumping all over their parents going, Hey, Hey, what are you doing? That's cardboard. That should be in the recycling. The parents are like, what? Since when did you start? <laughs> right. And they're yeah. teaching their parents. It's really cool. I have a friend named Alex Freed who went to school at the university of New Hampshire. And he realized that at the end of every school year, all of the college students were throwing away a lot of usable items. This is like couches and kitchen Tupperware and like everything that college students use for their year. They were just throwing it um, into these dumpsters. So he started a program where he would collect all of the students' um, all the students' supplies, store them over the summer in cargo containers. And then on the first week of the next school year, they would set up a flea market and they would sell this used but very usable um, stuff back to students. And his organization was able to make a profit as a result of it. And now this... This model, it's called the Post Landfill Action Network, has spread around to universities around the country. That's a no-brainer, right? Yeah. Makes so much sense. Gosh, I love that. I love stories like that. I had had a parent come up to me. Um, We started a gardening program at the school that I I went to, elementary school. And she came up to me and said, hey, I just want to thank you for um, for helping my, my child eat lettuce you know and I said well that's weird that's pretty random and I, I said tell me like what, what do you mean and she said well he never ever touched a piece of lettuce until he grew it in your in the gardens at the school and and he was so proud of the lettuce that he harvested and brought home in his little bag and he said mom I want to make a salad and she was just it was like this amazing moment that he got to or she got to share with her son, like of making a salad and watching him eat, eat lettuce. I was like, dang, all right. Get them while they're young. (laughs) Get them while they're young. The tobacco companies try and do it. (laughs) So it's good stuff. You know, it's, um, there's so much to do and it's really just trying to find ways to solve issues. Um, here in the elementary schools up to the high school levels, we, we've actually done some, We've done uh, some trash cans down at the at the, the beaches here, the state beaches. We've provided trash cans because what was happening is we had these trash cans that didn't have lids on them, and over the weekend they fill up, and the seagulls just start dive bombing because they're hungry. And next thing you know, the parking lot's covered with trash because the wind's onshore, and or if it's offshore, it blows out into the ocean. And so we kind of made these. Uh, design these trash cans with these, these lids that aren't attached, you know, they're attached, but they're not totally, they just kind of keep the seagulls out, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Right. They kind of look like R2D2 with this little dome on top of them. But so we've done some, some cool stuff here locally. And, uh, we're hoping just, like I said, it's all about just kind of inspiring people outside of what we're doing here yeah to do to do good things sweet man well let's wrap up soon but i um i want to ask you about music is that going to become a bigger part of your life in this next act i i love music man and uh yeah you know my son is is four and uh he just got his first drum set so i'm building a band right now you know it might take a few years He's only four, so <laughs> he's got to learn how to play. But um, could be tapping into some new markets. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I've. 
always been a huge fan of music and I always will be. And I love, uh, I don't know, just the, the purity of, of playing music. And I, it's kind of gotten put on the back burner for me. Um, just family and just focusing on other things. But yeah, I think I will see music come full circle back into my world. Nice man. Yeah. Um, I so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. I did too. Thanks, bro. Thanks for coming down. Yeah. Where can people get in touch with you? In- uh, Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. Rob underscore Machado. Um, Love it. My foundation, robmachadofoundation.org website. You can go on there and check it out. Kind of talks about all our programs that we talked about. You can sign up for our our mailing list or email list or whatever. Um, that exists on Instagram as well. And, uh, yeah. Sweet, man. That's about it. I'd love to try out for your lead as a lead singer for your band as well. I know that I got these golden pipes right now. The raspy. Yeah. I love it. It it adds credibility. For sure. (laughs) That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Blunderbuss by Mr. Jack White. Also, I misspoke when I said that Nestle was responsible for the Bolivian water protests. This is what really happened. Bolivian Congress passed a drinking water and sanitation law that effectively allowed privatization of water and the halting of government subsidies to municipal utilities in Cochabamba, Bolivia. Water rates began to rise, where most of the population in the city could not afford the price. Cochabamba is situated in a semi-desert region in Bolivia, therefore water is a priceless resource. Around January of 2000, the residents of Cochabamba decided to protest the company Bechtel, so it was not Nestle, it was Bechtel, and called for the protection of universal water rights for everyone. The protests continued over a period of months until April. The government revoked the privatization legislation. The reason I thought of Nestle, though, is that they have been in the news recently. Uh, bottled water company Nestle. Yeah, that's right. They, they bottle water. Recently extracted 1 billion liters of water from aquifers in rural Ontario since its permits expired last year. So, Kick Rocks Nestle as well as Bechtel. For those of you who are still listening, you are amazing humans. Get out in the ocean today if you can. If you're not near an ocean, get in Lake Wisconsin, get in a river, wash it off, give someone a high five, and I will see you all next week. Don't forget to head over to my website, kyle.surf, if you want to make a donation to this podcast, check out my book club, or get in touch with me. Here it is. Blunderbuss by Jack White. You grabbed my arm and left with me, but you were not allowed to. You took-
took me to a public place to quietly blend into such a trick pretending not to be doing what you want to but seems like everybody does this every waking moment Doing what two people need is never on the menu. 